Hey, visionaries, it's Pillar Talk time. Time to give you a little vim and vigor for your inner visionary by sharing the benefits of the calm pillars and backing up my pillarology with a little research. This month, I changed things up a bit with the conversation series, so these next two episodes are all about the management pillar, which will also help wrap up season one, which really, really trips me out. Oof. Anyway, if you're a first-time listener, I want to welcome you, and I want to suggest that you check out the bonus episode called A Little Pillar Talk to get an overview of the Calm Pillars, my framework for educating our babies, big and small, with relationship structure and engagement in mind. But listen, if you're leaned in and you're ready for episode 18, let's do this thing. What's good, visionaries? Thank you for bringing your lovely, your beautiful ears right here for episode 18 of Calm Conversations About Learning, where we lean in to re-envision education with and for the folks who matter most, parents, teachers, and of course, our young folks. I'm your host, Zanani, parent, BB, road tripper, and educator for life. And in the agenda pillar... I discussed the idea of co-creating the logistics of learning with our young people in an effort to promote autonomy, audacity, and accountability. However, I cannot think of a more withable pillar than the management pillar. It's the ultimate area in which we have opportunities to share space for our youngsters to make decisions, practice using their voices in meaningful ways, and whether the results of their decisions and ideas go well or go awry, they get to share in the celebration or consequences as well as in the process of tweaking mistakes and problem solving. But in teacher school, management is not typically addressed as a withable concept. It's referred to as classroom management, suggesting that the teacher is responsible for overseeing all things classroom, including activities, productivity, pacing, um, organization, and student behavior. In other words, the teacher is expected to control the weather as episode 10's guest, Renice Washington, described it. How a teacher manages a classroom is directly tied to how that teacher manages the energy, both her own and that of the environment. In the classroom management course that I took, I was tasked with considering how I would arrange my classroom for optimal oversight. I was also asked to think about my teaching style. Democratic, authoritarian, these were like a couple of the popular choices back in the day. In addition, there was quite a bit of focus on classroom rules. What kinds of rules, how many rules, and who should make the rules, which of course was, well, yeah, the teacher. At the end of the course, I remember I had this tidy little classroom management plan, which was totally theoretical since I wasn't teaching yet. Nevertheless, I decided on a horseshoe seating arrangement as I just I couldn't have imagined all the cool activities that my students would participate in that would place desks and chairs in other arrangements. I decided that my teaching style was both democratic and authoritarian, which had pretty much been my parenting style, for better or worse. 
And I managed to whittle my classroom rules down to a solid four because I couldn't have more than five and I wanted my future students to remember them. Pfft, heck, I wanted to be able to remember them. Woo, the changes I would make over the course of my teaching career. All these weather conditions that I was supposed to control, including my own internal hail and hurricanes just because I was the adult in the room, crazy. I didn't want to be the weather controller. It seemed to me that it was a lot of work to take on in addition to actually teaching children. My brain just couldn't make sense of becoming the teacher goddess of all that energy. What did make sense to me, however, was the idea of becoming a meteorologist and creating a team of meteorologist apprentices to study, observe, and co-create the forecast because, well, classroom management on its face had no long game. Classroom management, as I learned it, had no long-term value. I mean, when you look at the rules and all of the controlling of all the people and their stuff, plus your stuff, where does intention meet impact? Sure, there are logistical objectives and important ones that help keep students safe. And those logistical objectives should be built into the academic objectives. But when I thought about how classroom management informed college readiness, or more importantly, life readiness, there was a disconnect. Many classroom walls are plastered with phrases like respect others, or be kind, or raise your hand, or follow directions. But what does any of that mean in terms of playing the long game? I remember this one day when I was in the seventh grade, I raised my hand and asked to go to the restroom. My request was denied. Now, I promise you, this wasn't one of those get out of class to wander the halls type shenanigans. I really, really, really had to go to the restroom. So I raised my hand again and again. I asked politely to go to the restroom. My request was denied again, but this time came with a lecture about how I should have gone when the class went. This logic didn't even make sense to my middle school mind because my bladder had not been full when the class was given a restroom break. My bladder was full now when I'd respectfully followed directions by raising my hand and kindly asking to go to the restroom. My teacher didn't budge and I was not raised to argue with adults, so I stood up from my seat and walked out, then ran to the restroom. When I promptly returned to class, the teacher was pissed because, well, how dare I just walk out of class without permission? So guess what? I was sent to the vice principal's office where I received yet another lecture on what? Being disrespectful and failing to follow directions. Can you believe it? In what universe did this make sense? I was not allowed to defend my decision to manage my own body's call to relieve itself or to explain that I did indeed have home training, but I also had house training and I was not about to sit in class and pee on myself for anybody. Years later, when I became a teacher, I would remember that incident and think about the ambiguity 
absoluteness and arbitrariness of classroom rules. I would look at my own list of rules about respecting others, following directions, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera, and ask myself what I wanted for my students from this thing called classroom management. I realized that rules were not the same as expectations and that I needed to articulate my expectations for forecasting the weather and kick those rules to the curb. By the middle of my second year of teaching, I'd started a tradition of co-creating classroom norms with my students. Trust, it wasn't always a pretty process. Many of my students had never been asked how they wanted to engage or show up as students and peers. A few of them looked at me as if I was out to get them. A few others would test the parameters, but once they found themselves answering to their peers more than they were answering to me, once they were reminded that they'd co-created or at least agreed to the norm they'd violated, behaviors began to shift. They were becoming accountable to something larger than them, yet also something that they were a part of. Rules are often hardcore, yet vague, and many times they're capricious. They often come with punishments that don't fit the offense, and they don't help children to understand the power and impact of their actions. It's not punishment that generally shapes values and offers opportunities for self-reflection and self-awareness. It's consequences. What punishment does achieve is fear, craftiness, and maybe like this memory foam of the actual punishment. I mean, every whooping I ever got was for lying. So as a result, two things happened. I became hard-pressed to lie and when I did lie, I stayed loyal to the lie out of sheer stubbornness. <laughs> what I needed to learn, though, was that there were consequences to lying. That was the key. The Restorative Practices Handbook points out that consequences should be distinguished from punishment, defining punishment as something that is imposed on someone, generally with the intention of creating pain or discomfort for an infraction against some authority. A consequence, on the other hand, can be defined as the result or effect of an action or a condition, usually a natural or related result. I connected consequences with classroom norms because I wanted students to learn what it means to be accountable to others as opposed to being punished and learning nothing from their actions. Now, norms, they come with expectations and standards of behaviors that can be more easily articulated in real world terms, recognizing the gravity of one's actions and realizing that there are consequences to their actions. But check out the difference in the language of classroom rules and norms. Here's a classroom rule, respect others. Now, here's a classroom norm. Give your classmates your complete attention by leaning in and listening. The first phrase is up to the interpretation of the word respect. And trust me, I've heard some pretty, pretty interesting interpretations from students over the years. But the second phrase included verbs like give and lean in and listen. And did you notice that the word respect wasn't even used? So have you heard the saying that rules are meant to be broken? Well, maybe this is because rules come with threats instead of context. 
I don't know. But whether you're a teacher or a parent or some other adult who's been charged with the responsibility of managing young people's activities and behaviors, it's a worthwhile endeavor to ask, how does my management affect the long game? Do you want to try to control the weather only to find out, as my seventh grade teacher did, that you cannot possibly be the boss of all the tornadoes, earthquakes, and snowstorms that children carry inside them? Because... I had a Santa Ana of shame and anger from way too many small humiliations doled out by big people. And so on that day, I chose my dignity. I remember that there was this teacher who briefly worked at the school where I taught. She had been moved around the school district like a pedophilic priest who gets passed from parish to parish. She had refused to allow a student to go to the restroom. She had told him that if he had to pee, he could urinate in the classroom trash can. And so he did. Children should not be forced by adults to choose between their dignity and some stupid rule that seeks to humiliate. Over the years, I would set another tradition in my classroom, the restroom agreement, which upheld students' natural right to go to the restroom. They were allowed to slip out quietly and quickly. Yep. There were a couple of parameter pushers over the years, but for the most part, students enjoyed being trusted. A few colleagues had argued the inconsistency that my restroom agreement caused for their restroom rules, but I was dedicated to playing the long game, which was rooted in relationship, accountability, and mutual trust and respect. This was the kind of weather that I wanted for my mini meteorologist and myself forecast with a perfect temperature of 75 degrees. Sometimes, you know, we could expect cloudy with a little drizzle. And even when the drizzle occasionally turned into a downpour, we had our rain gear. Norms that had reasons and room for our growth. Did every student adhere to all the norms all the time? Nope. Did all the students agree on every co-created norm? They sure didn't. Remember, even if we adults try to control the weather, there's still going to be students who come with thunder and lightning. But even this must be considered part of the long game because some students have never known a classroom without ambiguous, arbitrary, and absolute rules. They've never been in a classroom with a sometimes messy but certainly fair set of norms that celebrated their autonomy, audacity, and accountability. Some of the babies just weren't used to it. But most students, they leaned into self-managing like a plant being called to the sun. So I am going to go out on a limb and say that encouraging self-management is the hashtag relationship goals of the classroom. I mean, come on now. Do we really want to spend day after day, week after week, and year after year managing the who, what, when, where, and how of teaching and learning? Like, why? What are we looking to achieve? What is the long game for our young people? All right, all right, visionaries. I hope that the M for Management Pillar Talk provided you with a little food for teaching and learning. Now, go grab your diary. Don't forget the key so you won't have to pick the lock. I've had to take a bobby pin to a lock a few times myself. (laughs) Anyway, here are some questions to reflect upon. What does the word management mean to you? Who are you managing currently? And who's managing you? 
What does it feel like to manage or to be managed? What is the long game for managing your child or student's learning? Next week, we're going to get practical about how you can co-create some withable management opportunities that lead to self-management, which is the ultimate management if we want children to become like these amazing adults. But in the meantime, and in all the between time, I want you to stay well, stay wonderful, and stay calm. Mm-hmm.